So if you'd open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. This passage is about marriage and divorce. And even before I read it, I just want to talk to you guys. Um, next year will we'll mark uh, 30 years of me in pastoral ministry. And the only reason I say that is because um, any pastor that's around for any amount of time, uh, we're, we're always encouraged to, to right away begin to understand the dynamics of, of marriage and marital counseling and that kind of thing because marriage takes a lot of work. And um, in that amount of time, uh, myself, I know Pastor Vince as well, Pastor Rob, and, and a lot of us, uh, we've seen a lot of sad things happen. We've seen great marriages. We've seen rocky marriages. We've seen uh, divorces. We've seen remarriage. And so I just want to say going into this study today uh, that there's no way that this is a totally comprehensive study on, on marriage and, and divorce. It, it just can't be. Uh, there are so many particulars uh, that happen uh, within a marital relationship. And so as we go into this thing, I, I realize, you know, we're, me as a pastor, I'm not afraid to teach this stuff. I, I rejoice in teaching it. But I'm mindful that I'm walking through a minefield a little bit. Because there are things here that are going to be uh, a cause for, you know, touching in sensitive areas in people's lives. And so this, this message today is not at all about condemnation, not in the least. It's about seeing God's design for marriage and how beautiful his design for marriage is. And that we would hold it, uh, the, the idea and the institution of marriage in high esteem because it is a beautiful thing. It's easy to, to view marriage uh, through the lenses of our own experience. And some are, sometimes our experience has been very sad and, and bad. Even growing up, we may have had uh, parents who were divorced and that kind of thing. And so we, we can see the destruction that, that can happen in a marital relationship. So I'm asking you as we go into this thing today, and I am going to be receiving questions at the end of the sermon, and I'm, I'm realizing I should probably need to get ready for a lot of questions maybe, and that's fine. Uh, it's worth talking about. But I guess I'm just going to encourage you guys, as we, go, as we enter this passage, please don't view it only through your own experience. Please, please, please. We want to see what God has to say. We want, we want his word and his truth to be the foundation, the starting point for understanding marriage. If we, if we can embrace the concepts that God give us, gives us, about everything, about life, but, but about marriage as we're here today talking about marriage. If we can embrace those concepts as being good, then we have a, a, a target to aim at. Debbie and I have been married 36 and a half years and there's always recalibration. We're always being reminded by the Lord and sometimes by each other <laughs> about what marriage is about and how God designed it. So there's always that going on. It's not a static relationship. It's very active. It's it's a union, it's organic, it's fluid. And so life is always changing, people are always changing, and nothing stays the same in regards to the human perspective. But in regards to God's design, God's design is always perfect and always good, and it doesn't change. And so I'm just going to invite you guys as we, as we study this to not be looking at it through the lenses of failure or the lenses of self-condemnation or anything like that or even the lenses of disappointment, but be looking at it through the lenses of God created marriage and it's good. So let's go for it. So 
Let me offer a word of prayer. I'll read the passage and we'll dive into study. Lord, as we look at this incredibly important passage, I pray, Father, that you'd lift our hearts and and relieve us and show us that all of your ways are good. Lord, all of your intentions towards mankind are good, Lord. So, Lord, as we look at this thing, may we be um, open to you and just know that you want to do that work in our hearts if any work needs to be done in our, in our thinking, in our attitudes, Lord, and in our sometimes revisionist uh, glances backwards at, at, at life. We just want to realign with you, Lord, because everything you do is good all the time. So, Lord, teach us your ways and help us to embrace your ways, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There is an amen. Chapter 10, verse, I like that. <laughs> Pastor Rob probably really likes that coming from Tennessee. Amen, right, Pastor Rob? <laughs> then he arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan, and the people gathered to him again. And as he was accustomed, he taught, he taught them again. The Pharisees came and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And they were testing him. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, his disciples asked him again about the same matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. If you look at your notes up here in the left corner, there's a little text box. And I I listed this website. And um, Ray Stedman was a pastor in Palo Alto for many years. And he's with the Lord now. But he has a tremendous... Website. I often read his material, raystedman.org. And I just want to encourage every person in this room, married or single, you know, you might be married, we always need tune-ups. Uh, you may have gone through a divorce, we need reflection. You might be single and looking for somebody, you need direction. You may be single for life, you can counsel others regarding marriage. I really want to encourage the whole church to read that. It'll only take you about 15 or 20 minutes. But it is extremely insightful. It's really good, and I was able to borrow a lot from his website. So, first of all, there was a debate on marriage and divorce, and we see the Pharisees coming to Jesus, and and they're insincere. And we get a little more information in Matthew chapter 19. In a parallel verse, a parallel presentation of this, it says the Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And so Matthew gives us just a touch more, and what Matthew gives us shows us that the Pharisees not only come testing Jesus, but they already kind of had their minds made up and they're, they're looking for some loopholes, in my opinion. Now, this word testing, I want to encourage you, when you're studying the Bible, follow the verbs. The verbs are the action words and it shows you the attitude and what's going on, it shows you the action. So the word testing, in a good sense, it's to test in order to, pr- provo- to prove the value of something, like a precious metal. If you're buying a car, you take it for a test drive. If you like the car, you're hoping the test drive goes well. If you don't like the car 
or your spouse likes the car, but you know it's a clunker. You're hoping the test drive shows that the car is a clunker. But they came with the intention of trying to disqualify Jesus. If they can get Jesus to incriminate himself one way or the other, then the, the power base, the religious power base, the religious influence over the nation remains with them and not with Jesus. So, take note of this. In a way, the Pharisees treated marriage the way that some of us treat marriage. They didn't come seeking the highest goal regarding marriage. They came looking for the loopholes in marriage. And when people address anyone, going to counseling or go to a pastor or reading a book or whatever, if you go looking for the most holy aspects of marriage, you will find them. But if you go looking for loopholes, you're probably going to see only what you want to see. And I think that's what they are doing. They're coming looking for loopholes. Not only are they trying to disqualify Jesus by getting him to say something that will make him unpopular, they are also, I believe, have their minds made up about using an argument on marriage in order to get their way. When our church first started, I was you know, immediately dropped into counseling uh, in regards to marriage. And this, what I'm gonna, this little story is about nobody in the room. Okay, And I was counseling this couple, and they were just, the guy was just a knothead, you know. And, uh, and finally he turned to me and pointed to his wife and said, isn't it her job to make me happy? Thank you for that. I just wanted to throttle the guy. No, it's not her job to make you happy. God wants to make you holy, and he wants to make you protecting and a covering and, and, uh, and a leader over your wife. And, of course, God wants her to respond rightly, but he was just so focused on himself. I think these Pharisees are doing the same thing. They're, they're trying to use the argument about marriage to further their agenda against Jesus. So there was a debate about divorce and about marriage in those days, and the debate is over a verse found in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 24. If you look at your notes, this is what Moses, God, God spoke through Moses, and, and Moses wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, and then it follows up with some other things. But if the man would find some uncleanness in his wife, then God permitted divorce. God did not command divorce. He permitted divorce. So kind of the pivotal word there in that, in that debate is the word uncleanness. Literally it means, and if you go back to the Hebrew dictionaries and stuff, and you, anybody can do this, literally it means an indecent sexual exposure or improper behavior. So there were two schools of thought. One rabbi named Shammai, he was a very conservative rabbi, and he taught that the word uncleanness means uh, sexual misconduct, and in the Old Testament, that's the only reason, the only valid reason for divorce. So those who followed Rabbi Shammai uh, adhered to that teaching that the only way, the only reason, the only time that a man could divorce his wife, by the way, at this point, it's, it seems rather patriarchal, but it gets the gender equality really comes in in the New Testament. We're going to see that in a minute, in case anybody's already wondering about that. And that's a current debate, isn't it? 
So Shammai said the word uncleanness means sexual misconduct, some impropriety, some you know, revealing of, of the body to, to another man or something like that. And only when that happens is divorce uh, granted and, and allowed and permitted by God. There was another school of thought, a guy named Rabbi Hillel. He had a lenient view, which was more popular, of course. And a guy named William Barclay, which was a, an English commentator, wrote these words about Hillel. Hillel said that, if a, that, that it could mean that if the man spoiled... Excuse me, my goodness gracious. English. Hillel said that it could mean that if the wife spoiled a dish of food or if she, or if she spun in the streets, you know, twirling around, if she talked to a strange man, if she spoke disrespectfully to her husband's relations in his hearing, if she was a brawling woman, which means her voice could be heard next door, that's before apartment complexes. That means she was unclean if she did any of those things. If she put too much salt on the breakfast, anything. A very liberal view. Another rabbi named Akiba even went the length of saying that it meant if a man found a woman who was fairer in his eyes than his wife was. A lot of people buy into that today, don't they? So look at the verse again. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes, so some of the rabbis would say, you know, I've been married to you 20 years. You don't, I don't find favor in you anymore. You don't look as good as you used to. You know, that kind of thing. So there was a very strict conservative view, very literal view. There was a very lenient, liberal, I think I just mixed up my words. There was a conservative, strict view, very much according to what the Bible said, and then there was a very lenient one that, that accommodated uh, carnality really accommodated selfishness. So that was the debate current during the time of Jesus. Look at Jesus' response. Well, let's go back to verse 2. The Pharisees came and asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And they were testing him, so they wanted to trip him up. And he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? Now I like that Jesus was never afraid to answer a question with a question. And he seemed to do this with people that he perceived were insincere. You know, if somebody, if somebody comes to me and says, how many angels can fit on the head of a pin? That kind of thing. And they're trying to cause a debate and trying to cause an argument. I might say something like this, and I can get a little snarky. If I give you the correct answer, will you give your life to Christ? <laughs> well, no. Well, then, then why are we talking? That kind of thing. So Jesus seemed to do that with people that he believed were insincere about their questioning. There, there's a, there's a, uh, an example of that in Matthew 21. It says, When he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will likewise tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of, the, of John the Baptist, where was it from, from heaven or from men? And they pulled aside and said, well, if we say it was from heaven, then the people will say, why didn't you, you know, follow him? And if we say it was from men, we're discrediting John and the population will be against us. And they said, well, we don't know. They, they had an opinion, but they weren't courageous enough to stand up for it. What's the current debate? What constitutes God's allowance for divorce? That's the question. Is it okay to divorce anybody? And Jesus is just simply saying, why don't you look at your heart for a minute? What does the Bible say about it? So he asks them a question and he's searching out their hearts. And so, you know, when people come to me for counseling, um, if they come trying to push an agenda, you know, um, 
as an older guy now, you know, one thing that I do have is experience and I can usually sniff it out a little quicker. And so, you know, why are you here? Just a well-placed question. Do you want the well-placed question for any of us? If you're if you're counseling a Christian, if somebody comes to you, a great great opening question is always, do you, are you willing to do what God says once you understand it, no matter what? Simple question. Will 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 you're not willing? And so Jesus was just getting to the heart of the matter. Why am I bringing this up? Because regarding marriage and divorce, we need to get to the heart of the matter. Do we really want what God wants? Or do we just want to have our way? And if you just want to have your way, you're going to find a way to, to have your way. It's not going to be a good way, but you'll find a way to have your way. But Jesus was not afraid to just ask people and get to the bottom of things. It's also very interesting it was fair for him to ask these religious leaders what they thought because they were leading the country. They were leading the nation. They were the teachers of the people. So they should have a good answer. And then also, consider this, whenever Jesus used this method, he would follow it up with teaching. He wouldn't just leave them hanging. But he would say, now search your heart, and oh, by the way, here comes the truth. So he would bring the truth, but he just wouldn't let them throw things around. He wouldn't let them throw questions around uh, kind of casually and insincerely. He just wouldn't put up with that. There was another incident in Luke chapter 12. Two men came to Jesus and they said, they said, Master, divide the inheritance between me and my brother. So apparently their father had died. Two brothers are fighting over the money. Gee, that never happens, does it? And they come to Jesus, divide the inheritance, play the lawyer. And Jesus said, who made me arbitrator over you? I'm sorry, I didn't see that I had a badge that said lawyer. And they would have to say, well, nobody... Well, then go settle it somewhere. What's my point? When we come looking at things, when we come asking of God, we need to be sincere. If you really want to know about marriage, the truth is in the word of God. And we need to set aside all of our emotions and we need to set aside great experiences and we need to set aside bad experiences and we always need to come back to to the foundational thing it's like going to the doctor, you know. They're aiming, as far as I know, you know, heart, uh, blood pressure 120 over 80, rear aspiration should be this, and your fluids should be that, your potassium should be, You're looking for that baseline that you always want to come back to. And emotions and selfishness and all these things get in the way of that. And then we want to redefine the baseline. That's what's going on in our world today, isn't it? Especially regarding marriage, isn't it? Started right over here in San Francisco, didn't it? Gavin Newsom. Redefining marriage, going against federal law and not being prosecuted. Some people would just say it was a good law to break. Others would say it was a bad law to break, whatever. But people are redefining marriage, and that's my point. But as a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, uh, then God wants to speak to you from his word. So Jesus answered their question with a question. What did Moses command you? Notice also Jesus took it back to the word of God. He didn't just start off with his opinion. Verse 4, they said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. So technically they answered correctly. They knew the words, but they missed God's intention. They missed God's heart on the matter. The word permitted here, it points out this fact. God spoke through Moses and allowed for a man to divorce his wife, but God did not command that a man had to divorce his wife. Hardness of heart was the reason. Let's say in the Old Testament days a woman is unfaithful to her husband. She comes and confesses. 
And the man says, well, you know, it's going to ca- cause too much trouble. We have three kids together. It's going to cause too much trouble if I divorce you to take care of the children and all that. So, so we'll just stay married. But he treats her horribly for years and years and years. He has a hard heart. He doesn't want to forgive. He doesn't want to reconcile. He doesn't want to realize that it could have been him. So he has a hard heart. And God is basically saying, instead of punishing her emotionally, depriving her, humiliating her, just let her go. If you're going to be that way, just let her go. It's a concession, not a command. It's not a command. God's God's desire would be that there would be reconciliation and forgiveness and a rebuilding of the marriage. But instead of punishing the woman like that, if you're going to do that, you're better off just to just let her go. And so was there fault with the woman? Sure. Was there ongoing fault with the man? Absolutely. Ray Steadman had a great thing, and if you read, if you read his, his website today, he said that divorce reveals sin. When there's a divorce, now the public knows what's been going on privately, that there was some kind of sin in the marriage, unfaithfulness or whatever the case may be. Divorce reveals sin. Divorce would reveal an impropriety. Divorce would reveal unforgiveness. Divorce divorce would reveal resentment, carelessness, ignoring a spouse, whatever the case may be. Divorce reveals that there was sin. It does, doesn't it? People don't get divorced because things are good. (laughs) They get divorced because things are bad. So, Jesus went on to teach about marriage. He said the reason God gave a concession, I really believe God, it it was a merciful thing. It was the lesser of the evils, if you will. But it wasn't his first choice. It wasn't God's first choice. Jesus goes on to teach about marriage. Look at verse 5. And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. God never demanded that there should be divorce. He allowed for it. Adultery absolutely causes great damage to the oneness of marriage. Absolutely does. We all know that. But adultery is forgivable. Absolutely forgivable. But a spouse may decide that they don't want to forgive because they're hurt and their heart is hard. I think I have seen, you know, in in my years of ministering as a pastor, when there has been improprieties and things like that, forgiveness and rebuilding comes when the offended spouse is walking close to the Lord. When the offended spouse, the one who's been hurt, when they are are really walking in the in under the influence of the Holy Spirit, all of all of that rebuilding and forgiveness and restoration happens much more quickly. And when there's an offense, the same kind of offense can take place in another couple and the offended spouse kind of ruminates over here in, in, a, in, a, in a land of bitterness for years and never ever can extend forgiveness because their life really wasn't in the spirit. It was mostly in the flesh anyway. And so adultery absolutely causes great damage. Unfaithfulness, marital unfaithfulness absolutely causes great damage in a marriage. But the readiness of the offended spouse also reveals something about them, doesn't it? 
if they are walking it with the Lord and, and walking in the grace of God and remembering also that God has forgiven them of so many things as well. When an offended person remembers, God has forgiven me a multitude of sins, I can forgive this. It's hard, I'm hurt, but I can forgive this. Then a marriage can be restored. So God doesn't command divorce, but he allows for it because if this other person just keeps ruminating over here in bitterness and anger and mistreats the, the offender, it's, it's just not going to get any better. And so he allows for it. It's a concession that God gives, as I see it. I, I put the word warning in big block letters and just so that everybody would see it. One might be permitted to divorce because of the hardness of the heart, but what kind of long-lasting condition does that leave you in? Leaves you with a hard heart. Leaves you with a hard heart against uh, the coach that didn't put your kid in in the soccer game. It leaves you with a hard heart against the mailman that delivered your mail to the wrong person. It leaves you with a hard heart with the person that took your parking place at Whole Foods, as if there were any. (laughs) I've seen people that have a legitimate biblical reason to divorce, divorce, but they do it out of anger and meanness and bitterness And then as far as the marriage goes, they're released, but guess what? They're still stuck with themselves. There's an old t-shirt that says, wherever you go, there you are. (laughs) Wherever you go, there you are. And so if, you know, somebody somebody might say, well, you have grounds for divorce. I hate that guy. I'm going to ruin him. I'm going to destroy him. I'm going to take all this money and blah, 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 blah. And biblically, they have grounds for divorce. But their life is a mess. And the spouse is gone. Now, that, now, now who are they going to be, have a hard heart against? Pretty much anybody they run into. So just because there's grounds for divorce doesn't mean that divorce is the best thing. In fact, it's never the best thing, in my opinion. It's allowed. But it's not the desire. It's not the, it's not the goal. Forgiveness and rebuilding a marriage is always the first choice for a Christian to pursue. Always the first choice. And in my experience when I've seen marriages restored, and it's a beautiful thing to see a marriage restored, it's always, always better than it was before the problem. When the marriage is restored, it's because there was a mature, there was two broken people, two humble people, and two people that were willing to face the truth and come before the Lord and say, God, forgive me, forgive him, I forgive you, you forgive you. And there's two people that are broken and humble, and they say, we want what God wants. And there's some beautiful stories that we've seen of rebuilt marriages. It's always the first choice. Repentance needs to take place in the offender. Their heart led them to wrong actions. But maybe there was also offense in the the, the heart of the other person in pushing a person away. I'm not trying to justify anything or defend anything. Sometimes rebuilding a marriage takes humility and repentance in both hearts, the one that committed the visible offense and the one who committed non-visible offenses. Repentance needs to take place. Trust needs to be earned and restored. This takes time. To trust somebody is to take a risk. Forgiveness ought to come as soon as possible. 
Forgiveness means I'm not going to hold this, this, this offense against you. I'm not going to use it against you. I forgive you. It's not between us anymore. That should happen as soon as possible. And once again, the Bible is so full of teaching on forgiveness, isn't it? We have been forgiven a great debt. If you're a Christian, God's forgiven you a great debt. And therefore, he's commanded us to forgive as well. So forgiveness ought to come right away. Trust needs to, to be restored, though, and trust takes time. I would never counsel a man or a woman. I would always counsel them to forgive right away, and I would follow that up with, but don't let them back in the house necessarily right away. Trust needs to be restored. And then maybe let them back out into the garage. And then maybe on the couch. And then they can sleep at the door to the bedroom. I'm being a little silly here for fun, but trust needs to be restored. And even after trust is broken, it's still a risk to start trusting somebody again. There needs to be some visible uh, evidence that somebody is really trying to be trustworthy again. That takes time and can't be rushed. The person called to trust that offender again also could just fold their arms and say, I'll do it when I'm good and ready with no intentions of ever being ready. And then they leave this person in despair. So it can go both ways, can't it? Romans 12, 17 to 19, look at your notes. It says, Repay no, no evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. It takes two people to rebuild a marriage. One can't do it. It takes two. It takes two humble people. And, and I love that, that Paul simply says, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Sometimes the offended person really does want to rebuild the marriage, but the offender is only half-hearted and they can't live peaceably with one another and it just never heals up and divorce follows. We can only do our part. When I have counseled people before, and you guys know this, we cannot change the other person. All we can do is do our part. It's all that we can do. We can wait for God to change them. We can wait for God to break them in a healthy way, to bring them to the place of brokenness. But we can't change anybody. But we can have God work in our own hearts as much as lies within us. Look at verse 6. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. God's only design for marriage is that it be between one man and one woman. That's it. He doesn't say men and a woman or a man and women or man and man or woman and woman or anything else. He says one man and one woman. So if a person wants to follow Christ, that's what God says about it. And obviously many ideas in the world around us today aren't there. I, I believe what God says. Verse 7. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, the two shall become one flesh, they are no longer two but one flesh. The idea for marriage is that there's oneness. And uh, it's translated in a lot of ways. It's like glued together. If you can look at these beams, uh, the lights are off here, but if you look at the beams, go ahead and, go ahead and look up, church. Those, those are laminated beams. Those are uh, either one inch or two inch thick boards. They're about you know, maybe four to six inches wide. But they bend them together. They put them in, in, in uh, clamps and molds. And, I'm, and for all the carpenters, I'm destroying this description. But they bend the wood and then they glue it together. And from what I understand, the glue joint is stronger than the wood. 
So if you try to pull those laminate beams apart, it's the wood that's going to give, not the glue. I've often thought about divorce. Husband and wife are, are one flesh. And this is kind of disgusting, but that's how I think. <laughs> Imagine just getting one of your arms just yanked off. Welcome to church. Enjoy your lunch. It's just a tearing away. Can the body, can the person survive? Absolutely, they can survive. But are they, are they crippled? Absolutely. There's, there's a hurtfulness that happens when oneness in marriage is destroyed. Jesus gives us more here, and, and he, he teaches us. Look at your notes here. Both husband and wife are to come out from under the authority of their parents, and they are to experience their closest human relationship with each other. I've seen uh, married couples where, you know, the wife still goes back to dad for counsel and advice and just throws her husband to the side. Or the husband is so committed to his parents and siblings that the wife just trails along and feels left out. When two people get married, married, that's oneness. It starts at, at, at the, on the wedding day and it keeps developing over, over the life. And so just a word of caution, if there's anybody in the room and you're married and you have a tendency to esteem your family over your spouse, you're wrong. God says it, right? You're not one flesh with your parents. You're not one flesh with your uncles or your siblings. You're not one flesh with anybody except your spouse. And so I understand how familial bonds, you know, uh, brothers can feel like, oh, you abandoned us and you married her. No, bro, I'm here for you. You know, and the, and the guy's more concerned about what the brothers are going to say. Are you going to come over for, for, for Super Bowl? Well, you know, yeah, forget my wife. I'll be there, bro. We're family. That's destroying a marriage. God says there's only oneness with your spouse. I understand the natural bond to parents, but marriage is a deeper bond. Sometimes a mom will pour herself into her children and feel closer to them than she does to her husband. And I know that the, the mother-child bond is very deep, but God doesn't call it oneness. I have permission to tell this story from my wife. <laughs> we've had some pretty smooth sailing, but we, we've, we've had a few, you know, we've had a slight turbulence along the way, like everybody. And I remember Debbie telling me one time, and it shocked me. Every woman in the world, every, every mom in the room is going to laugh. But it shocked me. She goes, I, it's so easy to love the children. I have to work at loving you. <laughs> and I was like, what? All of this? Are you kidding me? <laughs> the kids came out of her body. The kids, when they're little especially, just so fulfilling and just so... It's such a, a, the maternal instinct is so strong it's, and it's beautiful and it's, it's designed by God to be strong like that. And I would guess, and I'm not a woman, definitely <laughs> not a woman, but it has to be so much easier to love the kids than love this lughead over here, you know, who leaves his dirty socks everywhere and dirty dishes and all of that, you know. The kids are just so adoring of mom and then there's them, you know. 
Moms don't have oneness with their kids. They have oneness with their husband. Sorry, anybody. That's what the Bible says. You have oneness with your spouse, with your husband. I think, I think a woman, a wife, a mom, might be setting herself up even for a great catastrophe because those kids eventually grow up and leave. And then you're turning and facing this guy that you've been married to for 25 years that you don't know because all the energy went into the kids. And the empty nest reveals it. So it, it's, it's very natural but we're not supposed to do what's natural. We're supposed to do what's spiritual. Amen, church? We're supposed to do what God says to do. So moms, be careful about that. Guys, on the other hand, may say, you know, my wife doesn't understand me, so they just hang out in the garage throwing darts and drinking beer with their buddies. Because guys, all the guys do anyway is just grunt. You know? And they just, they understand it. You know, they don't even have to talk. They just burp and grunt and they understand each other. Oh, my wife doesn't get me at all. You know, give me another beer. Guys, you're not one with your friends. You're one with your wife. Well, she doesn't understand me. Well, put the darts down and take her out on a date. Amen. <laughs> I'm going to get cookies on this one. <laughs> Learn how to pour your heart out to your wife. If she doesn't understand you, try harder. Get the crayons out and draw her a picture. Do everything you can to communicate your heart to your wife because you're one with her, not with your buddies. We have to view marriage, guys, according to what God says, not according to our emotions, not according to human logic, not according to what's practical. We have to view marriage according to what God says. Look what Ray Stedman says, another gem from him. Stedman on oneness. The wedding service does not make you one, it, it, it begins the oneness. The first act of sex after marriage does not make you one. It begins the process, but it does not finish it. It takes the whole marriage to accomplish this. Marriage is the process of two people becoming one. It's a, it's a journey together of increasing oneness. Yes, yes, I believe that it starts at the marriage day and at the consummation of marriage, but it, it doesn't, that's, if that's as far as it goes, then it does, that's not very far, is it? It's a lifelong commitment towards oneness. Look at verse 9. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. God declares marital union as a oneness, and his intention is that it not be broken. You know, it's beautiful and difficult that men and women think differently. It's, It's beautiful and difficult that we want different things. Every time I'm around a woman who's crying or something, I just don't say anything. I have no clue. She's either really happy or really sad or really emotional or she, uh, I don't know, didn't make the bed or I'm going to get myself in trouble. I have no clue. I have no clue, you know? Men and women are so different, but we need to invest in each other in marriage in order to understand one another. The oneness that God wants to create in so many ways isn't natural. It's supernatural. And it goes beyond natural. And it goes deeper than natural and higher and more glorious and more wonderful than natural. I don't want to be married to another version of me. I need my wife. 
I need all of her insights and her heart and tenderness and mercy and grace and inclinations and all of that to to balance me out and make me a whole person. And so it takes some work. But his intention is that it not be broken and sometimes we let it break because we don't want to work. Look at verse 10 and 12. It's almost like now Jesus is anticipating some questions. Then, and in the house, his disciples asked him again about the same matter. I have to think that they understood the underlying intention of the Pharisees. Can we just divorce for any reason? Can I just get out of this thing? Verse 11, so he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband, now there's the equal gender thing, and marries another, she commits adultery. He seems to be saying, if, if person A gets tired of person B, they divorce person B and go for look for another person for convenience or want or whatever. I'm tired of you because you just bug me or whatever, and I think I'm going to be more. I found my soulmate over here and, and all that kind of stuff, you know. No, that's, that's to commit adultery. To, to dump one, to get another one, Jesus says that's adultery. I believe that's the intention of what was going on there. If you have any questions, um, please do send them into the media team, and I'll try and answer them. A couple of other passages regarding divorce and remarriage. You cover the, this is Malachi. Malachi is in the Old Testament. God was correcting the nation. They were mistreating, the men were mistreating their wives. God said, you cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. In other words, you do religion, but God's not listening. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously, Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. God wasn't blessing the nation. They were going to church, put it in modern vernacular, but God wasn't blessing them. And they say, why aren't you blessing us? We're coming to church. And he says, because you're, you're mean at home. You're mean to your wife. Now this verse, I, and once again, I, this, you know, I had a wonderful epiphany some years ago about marriage that part that says she's your companion and your wife by covenant. Sometimes I think we have the mistaken thought that, that marriage is going to be 4th of July all the time. Hollywood would have us to believe that we're always running through fields in slow motion at each other. <laughs> that we never get old, we never gain weight, we never, you know, it's always going to be on a 10, on a scale of 1 to 10, and every day is going to be a 10. That's just not true. And I remember... As a, as a foolish younger husband, feeling like I haven't seen a ten day for a while, you know, I want some ten days, you know, and uh, reading this verse and it really struck me. I didn't marry Debbie so we could have fireworks every day. I married her so that we could do life together. She's my companion, and it really just settled me down. We have our ten days, you know. When she sees things my way, it's great. <laughs> I'm gonna totally get it. <laughs> We have those times of excitement and romance and just, you know, Twitter-pated, you know, and all of that. But those don't happen every day. But we're always companions. That we're always, there's always oneness. That's more important than having fireworks, doing life together. That really helps me a lot. 
God goes on to say, Did he not make them one having a remnant of the Spirit? And why? God seeks godly offspring. And we know that not everybody can conceive and bear children. But that was one of the reasons God wanted marriage for the nation of Israel. Therefore take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. He doesn't hate people that get divorced. He hates divorce. Why? Because it hurts. Because it's destructive. He hates divorce. It covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. He's telling these men, be careful the way you treat your wives. Don't think that coming to church is okay if you're you're mistreating your wife, and vice versa. Finally, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, down at the bottom. We're going to close with this. Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. The goal is to be in the house together, to stay married. But if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. Sometimes a woman does have to get out. The man's abusing drugs, he's getting violent, he's bringing criminal activity into the house. I'd be the first one to say, absolutely, get out of the house. And I've told women that, I've told men that. Somebody's getting physically abusive, women can beat up men too. I, I would I'd say God doesn't call you, call you to stay in the house where criminal activity is going on and there's drugs and all these other things and there's violence. Get out. Don't aim for divorce, just get out. Be safe. Don't be liable to getting arrested. Get the kids out. If somebody wants to act that way, you can't stop them, but you don't have to be the victim. If she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. If, if a person needs to get out of the house, it's so that the, God can deal with the, other, the offending spouse. So that God can you know, kind of wrestle them down to the ground. You pull yourself out of the argument. You pull yourself out of the, out of the crosshairs and let God deal with that person. But to the rest I say, but to the rest I, not the Lord, say, and Paul's just simply saying, Jesus didn't say this, but God spoke this to my heart, and so I'm going to say it. Same authority. If any brother has a wife who does not believe and she's willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he's willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. So sometimes there's a, a marriage where one, one person is following Jesus and one isn't. That lack of sameness regarding spiritual things isn't grounds for divorce. And then he says, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. The word sanctified means to, to make holy. And I think what it means is there's, there's a, a holy presence. The Holy Spirit's in the house. Even if only one spouse is a Christian. The unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. A Christian mom is a great influence in a home, even if dad doesn't come to church. Or a Christian dad, even if mom doesn't come to church. There's the fragrance of Christ, the presence of Jesus in the home. So there's some good that comes out of that for sure. Verse 15, But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases. God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? What I get out of that is this. If someone's living with an unbelieving spouse and they depart, let them go. Hopefully you're not packing their bags for them. (laughs) 
But, I, but it seems to, be, to, to me that, that Paul is saying sometimes maybe a, a, a believing spouse, a believing wife, an unbelieving husband, a believing wife is begging her husband not to go, please don't go. He's abusive, there's drugs in the house, there's mistreatment, there's bad language. And she's begging him to stay because she thinks if he only stays, he'll come to Christ eventually. He'll come to Jesus, he'll be around me, I'm going to church, fragrance of Christ, the presence of the Holy Spirit. If I just keep him in the house, God's going to save him. And Paul's simply saying, dear sister, how do you know he's going to be saved? He said, God's called you to peace, to live in peace. So for the unbelieving spouse who's causing problems in the house and decides to leave, Paul says to the Christian that stays, and we always have to follow the Spirit and pray, but he says to the Christian that stays simply this, it's okay to let him go because God's called you to live in peace. Sometimes, guys, it's good to take ourselves out of the argument and like Jacob wrestled with God. Just let the person wrestle with the Lord. I realize that there are a lot of scenarios that I have not covered today, and, and I kind of told you that going into it. So, um, but I think these are the basics. Oneness, companionship. The great intention of working on a marriage. Of understanding that oneness is not something that happens by accident. But we need to have our hands to the plow, if you will. We need to be working on it. And we need to see that marriage is a great, great thing. It's been said that, uh, you know, the divorce rate, even in the church, is 50% among Christians. But I heard one pastor say, and I believe, I agree with him, the divorce rate among Christians who are walking with the Lord is zero. They don't get divorced. They work it out. Two Christians that are committed to Jesus will not get divorced. They'll work it out. They'll always work it out. But if there's divorce, divorce reveals that there's sin. That somebody was unwilling to work it out. They didn't want to work it out. I think that's why God hates it because where there's divorce, it means there's been damage. And I think God hates when people are damaged. And if anybody in the room, you know, I'm not thinking of anybody, but if anybody in the room, you've, you've been the offender and, and you've caused the divorce and, and so on and so forth, God loves you still. You're not disqualified from the kingdom of God. It's something you need to maybe even go back today even and just say, Lord, forgive me. I carried a bad attitude and I see it now. And so many people, after they go through it, they, they realize, oh my gosh, I really blew it. And, but we rededicate our lives to the Lord over and over again, don't we? And just say, Lord, thank you, Jesus, for dying on a cross for my sins. Thank you that I'm forgiven. Thank you that you're not done with me yet. And all my days going forward, Lord, I want to be pleasing to you. There's always restoration with the Lord. There always is. Let's see if there are any questions uh, this morning. What are your thoughts about young adults that are serving in ministry, aren't married, but having sex? Give me their names. <laughs> I've seen this in other churches. Yeah, sex, sex, sex is for marriage, and that's it. That's it. There's no exceptions in that. And if they're having sex and, and, the, and the pastor is allowing it and he's lenient on it, he's allowing uh, sin into the church. There's a, there's a story in the Old Testament, I'll just refer to it quickly. Sin, there's sin in the camp. And um, it needs to be dealt with. Those guys, need to, they need to repent and they need to turn from it or they need to step down from ministry and get their hearts right with God. When we serve the church, we are, mari- 
Are we married to it? No, so to speak. No, we're not married to the church. We're married to our spouse. We're committed to the Lord. We're not even committed to the church, and and please understand my words. We're only committed to the church insofar as God has told us to commit to the church. Commit the time, but we're committing our time to the Lord, not to the church. So if we break the law against the church when we serve, is it sort of like adultery against the church? No. It's just simply, it might be carelessness or it might be laziness or irresponsibility. I mean, let your yes be yes and your no be no, you know. But if you're serving the Lord, it's him that you serve. It's not me, it's not the staff, it's not the church primarily. It is secondarily, tertiary way, but primarily it's serving the Lord. You hear stories about people that say, you know, I got involved in church and it ruined my marriage. Well, you may have been involved in church, but God wasn't leading you to serve in order to ruin your marriage. Somebody, you, somebody wasn't paying attention to the Lord. Is there sacrifice in serving God? Absolutely. 1995, I drove away on an Evans bus going to Serbia. Uh, it was our first year of having floods in Napa. It was uh, on our anniversary, and I was driving away in a bus crying. I'm sure my wife was home crying with three young kids. I felt like a loser. It was, it was costly. It's costly to serve the Lord. Great, I'm going to Europe and the flood is, and the river's rising. <laughs> Way to go, pastor. <laughs> it, it, it costs to serve the Lord. But in serving the Lord, it should never, the, the end result should never be a destroyed family because then the Lord wasn't leading. You were probably doing more than God was asking you to do. If we serve the Lord, he always gets it right, doesn't he? He always gets it right. How do you balance seeking the Lord Jesus in ministry and marriage? I love what Jesus said. Seek what? The kingdom of God. Seek first. Seek first the kingdom of God. Just because you can serve at church doesn't mean you should. Just because you can afford three vacations a year doesn't mean you should go. Just because there's a need doesn't mean you show up early and stay late. You seek the Lord. You seek the Lord. Guys, in marriage, I didn't ask Debbie 36 and a half years ago, and give me a list of 10 things to do, I'll put them on the refrigerator, and as long as I do those 10 things, it's all good. Because life is fluid, and we walk in the Spirit. The church isn't a machine, it's an organism, it's living, breathing, flexing, changing. Huge changes going on for our church right now in this next season, aren't there? A lot of readjustment, but it's all good because the Lord's leading. So we have to have ears to hear, we have to pay attention, we have to not be rigid, and we have to seek the Lord. And I'm fine if somebody's seeking the Lord and they're saying, you know, I think right now I need to step back from ministry. I think God's directing me to pay more attention to my family. Good. And by the way, it's not, it's not family first. It's not church first. It's God first. I am against the phrase that says family first and God gets leftovers. It's God first. Always. Seek first the kingdom of God. If you're following Jesus, the balance will be there. Don't let yourself get intimidated by church leaders that say you should be doing more. God will tell you if you should be doing more. Don't be, uh, you know, tripping out on yourself and thinking, I need to serve more because I've been a bad person. Forget all that. Seek the Lord and he'll, the balance will be there. The right, I don't even like the word balance because it implies 50-50. For one season of your life, 80% of your time might be in, in Christian service and 20% for your family. And then the next year it might be 80% for your family and 20% at church. It's fluid, and it takes a mature person to, to, to sense what God is doing. 
So. We're going to uh, partake in communion this morning. We're going to enjoy that together. I just, I'm, Pastor Rob's going to teach next week on verse 13, but can you, can you open your Bibles again to chapter 10 really quickly? I love that this next passage is right after a passage about divorce and remarriage. <laughs> Because this is how we need to be. This is how we need to come to communion. Then they brought young children to him that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked those who brought them. And when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me, and don't forbid them, for such is the kingdom of God. With all this talk about divorce and remarriage, and if there's any, there's, I, hope there, I hope nobody feels condemned today, maybe convicted because some calibration needs to happen, but not, not condemned. But let it all boil back down into this, Lord, I'm like a child before you. I trust you, I don't even understand it all, but I trust you, you're my dad, you're my father, I trust you, I'm dependent on you, I just want it to be really simple with you, Lord. And I I love that that came after that tough passage. For me, it's kind of a relief, you know? I don't understand all the the particulars. I'm never going to counsel everybody, right? I'm not going to be the perfect husband. Debbie's not going to be the perfect wife. We're not going to be perfect parents or perfect grandparents, but I can still be like a child before the Lord.